This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Program. This is 3CR. One thing you may not know about me is that I'm a really big fan of history, particularly the Soviet Union. I even wrote a book about it a couple of years ago. And if you keep looking back, then you think, what would, I, what would it have been like to have been there? More and more these days, I find myself trying to do the converse, which is look at the present moment, how historians will look at it in the future. I think this year in the climate movement, will be studied for generations. It represents a real shift in tone. It's the time when the demand for action on climate change has become generalised. For this reason, I'm doing part two of Resist, following on from covering the climate strike in part one. This episode will look at how the climate movement has embraced direct action. This week, the scenes spread over the TV screens across Australia of the IMARC blockade is a manifestation of a movement that has collectively realised that the traditional avenues of power and influence have failed within this country at generating anything like meaningful action on climate change. Today, we will be talking to representatives of concentrations of direct action, namely Apsara Sabaratnam. That's right. <laughs> um, from Blockade IMARC, and Rilke Laycock-Walsh from the Adani Blockade. I want us to get an understanding of what these activists hope to achieve, why they consider direct action so important, and what life is like on the ground of these historically, historically vital actions. First up, we will have Apsar on. Uh, now, I'm not sure about your social media feeds, but this week, the images of police protesters and capsicum spray of the blockade outside Imar. This is the International Mining and Resources Conference. The protests seemed to carry on from the previous week's climate strike, but represented a marked shift in character. Where strikes were large, Vietnam-era masses of people congregated, the police keeping their distance, the IMARC protests and the IMARC blockade were smaller and had police hammering protesters with batons and bearing down on them with horses. These were blood, there were blood and broken bones from the protesters. Here to try and unpick the events with us, live in the studio, we have IMARC spokesperson, 2018 Greens candidate, Apsara Sabaratnam. Is thank that... you. Thank you very much. Yeah, you got it right. <laughs> awesome. Welcome. Well, massive welcome to the show, Sarah. Yeah, thank you very much for having me too. Um, it's really great. Um, I couldn't get away from the IMARC blockade. Um, I don't watch commercial TV, but they play it in the gym. Sometimes I think it's sort of a tactic to get everyone so angry that they, they work out harder. The coverage was predictably eye-rolling. You know, the, the sort of the byline underneath said, protest a chaos, stop central Melbourne, as if 
there was nothing else at play. Let me read the Herald Sun's outline as the worst offender from my little Media Watch episode. I mark protesters to be banned from wreaking havoc on Melbourne Cup Carnival. Now, I don't really understand how those two events are related. Uh, the one thing that seems to get left out of the media narrative every single time is why. Mm. So I want to make some space for that now, Apsara. Why were people protesting IMARC? Yeah, so I mean, first of all, uh, I like exactly, you know, it's the clutching of straws, you know, when they um, they make the links between uh, IMARC protests and the Melbourne Cup protests. Yeah. Um, yes, there are going to be protests outside of Melbourne Cup, understandably. Right. But we're not involved in that, so, you know, that's really interesting, yeah. the link. But yeah, I would, uh, thanks for actually giving me the opportunity to talk a little bit about what is IMARC and why we decided to uh, blockade IMARC as well. So I mean, IMARC is um, just the short for International Mining and Resources Conference. And it was a conference that was uh, set up by the previous Naptean government. And uh, yep. Dan Andrews and the uh, current uh, Labour government uh, inherited it, but continued on with the conference. This is a sixth conference. And for the previous five, no one had known anything about it. And it um, you know, was business yeah. as usual. So your question was, who is uh, coming to blockade? Uh, who's coming to IMARC? Mm. Um, the kind of companies that come to IMARC are companies like BHP, BP, Rio Tinto, Oceana Gold. And in the past, Adani, until they got into a lot of trouble and, you know, and because of the backlash, they were told not to come after 2017. But there are also lots of very small companies that go to IMARC and there are many companies that are actually um, suppliers of uh, equipment to companies like Adani too. So we need to understand how interlinked a lot of these companies are. These companies account for 16% of total carbon emissions. Right. Okay, so we're talking about it was a big deal for the reason why we were actually there. But also we need to remember the uh, mining companies have been on the forefront of um, colonialism. Yep. And they have literally been pushing Indigenous people off the uh, off their lands for a long time. So l- let's also contextualize that. Right. Um, they've um, they've also been uh, union busters, and um, when it comes to w- uh, workers' rights, um, uh, mining industry has been very uh, at the forefront of. Um, uh, abusing workers as well, yep. and I think at the end of the day, let's not be let's be clear. They are often part and parcel of conflict situations around the world, mm-hmm. and in some cases also propping up dictatorships so that they can get access to minerals. So these companies are not good corporate citizens, and yet um, IMARC was all about greenwashing. Right, right, right. And and what steps? Can protests make um, take to prevent sort of the, the the protest and the blockade losing control of the narrative? Because I'm so I'm so conscious the way that sort of the narrative gets bleached and sort of sapped of any meaning. And what what can be done by protests like blockade IMARC to to defend against this? Well, you're right. Um, mainstream media has no interest in um, uh, in. Uh, uh, actually uh, telling the truth. Mm. We saw that in Blockade IMARC. I mean, uh, um, the mainstream media painted us as being a bunch of rabble-rousers who were there uh, uh, stopping people from going about getting to work, for example. Let's be real. Um, We were blockading mining executives, not everyday workers. 
um, these executives uh, do not do anything and are not interested in making any changes unless something is done that actually affects their hip pocket or their brand image. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And so we were there uh, to send a very strong message to these mining executives who are flying to Australia from all around the world to say that mining and extractivism in the way it is done currently is not uh, conducive with the climate catastrophe that we're in. Yeah. So I think it's like yeah. that's really what I would like us to like look at. And, you know, we need to recognise that a mainstream media is not going to be telling that story. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, can can we just break with this interview just just for um, ten minutes? We just have an overseas call that um, that I, I want to put on, which is our first first guest. We had to do a little bit of um, juggling around, so I'd just like to um, put uh, put on Callum Callum McFarlane now, and then we'll get we'll get right sure. back to you, Absara. Hello, hello, Callum. Are you there? I am. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. I, I know that you're uh, you're in the UK and it's the early morning and you're you're really trying hard. I'll I'll, I'll just uh, give the listeners a bit of an introduction. Um, so. On Resist Episode 1, we spoke with Mark Hudson, uh, a man who is relentlessly honest about the state of the world and the prospects of protest to improve it. I had him on so we keep a clear head and do not estimate, underestimate the obstacles that the climate strike and IMARC blockade have preventing them from creating real change. We also spoke with, IMAR, uh, with Mark about a, a vasectomy he got back in 2009 and... When I I wanted to chat with him about children, he suggested I spoke I speak with you, Callum. Uh, now, Callum is a father of two boys who has thought and written very deeply on the subject of climate change and being a parent. Um, in particular, his piece, if you're freaking out about climate change, especially if you're a parent. Um, I have three sisters who have had four children in the past two years. It's a subject that's very difficult to bring up with some parents, and some parents get quite offended. Callum, a very big welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, climate change is a multi-generational, civilizational threat, yet the responsibility for inaction sits squarely on a few generations living now, specifically the two that are in the driver's seat at the moment. How do you manage f- the feelings of watching your children grow with an understanding of what sort of life they can expect? Honestly, from a day-to-day answer, or from a sort of day-to-day perspective, functionally speaking, I ignore it. Um, it's kind of like having a, a psychopath turned up in a room in your house. You, you know they're there. Mm. But, you know, day-to-day, you just pretend everything's normal. Um, there's an interview with a lady called Suzanne Loza who's been writing um, on on this topic for some time, since since the 90s. And... Um, there's a short extract that uh, I'd like to read because it informs an awful lot of the perspective I had on, on this, whole, this whole subject. Um, and and it, she describes uh, what she calls functional denial. And she says, um, it's incredibly hard to look for the realities we've created in the eye. The functional part is that we have to keep going regardless. I function as if the world were just a regular old world in which everything stays the same. And I don't have to worry too much about anything. And then she goes on to say, at the same time, every single day, I face what we have created. If you 
you ask me to stop for a minute and say, how do you feel about that? It can paralyze me. Mm. I have so much grief about it. I have such anger about it. It's all one big morass of emotions that I have about what we humans have had the audacity to create out of blindness and then out of greed. So I think it's one of these things that is incredibly hard to face. And mm. um, you, <laughs> you can't function as a human being um, by kind of looking at it every day. As I've discussed with Mark, who you met in the previous guest, you know, when you look into your best, your best looks into you, and that's not actually good for any of us to, to do all the time every day. You you talk about how how deep we are in this whole, uh, in terms of how, uh, speaking of the de- dealing with the lag and how we're not really, like our current circumstances don't represent the amount of carbon in the air. And it's really hard. It's a really difficult subject to connect with other people on because it's it's always rendered in so many different shades of black. Um, even discussing it sort of exacts a high emotional cost. Um, does your partner appreciate our predicament? And what what sort of conversations did you have before committing to having a child? So my wife's aware of, of, of kind of where things are. Um, Maybe she's a little bit more glass half full about our ability to shake ourselves and, and, and react to it. Um, when we had our first child, which was back in 2013, um, I was not aware of the sort of full time survival. I was aware of climate change, but I wasn't aware of, of, of the severity of it as far as time. Um, to be honest, at that point, I was probably more concerned about uh, things like people. Um, and then, laterally, uh, yeah, that was something, it's something that I really sort of scratched into my consciousness probably about a year ago, uh, last December, so slightly less than a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's something that, um, did we discuss before we had children? No, no, we didn't. Um, she doesn't necessarily um, share my sort of assessment of, of where we are, but... Um, she certainly doesn't doesn't ignore it or, or mm. pretend it didn't there or, or deny it completely. Um, so I think I think we kind of live in a state of, of again radical hope, which is uh, Suzanne knows a term. Basically, he 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 describes Suzanne describes it as um, again. I'll just read a very short quote. With radical hope, you don't know at all if the outcome is positive or negative. Neither the means nor the ends are clear. And you have to reinvent yourself completely to come to peace with whatever that new future is. And I think that's kind of where where I am, is that you, you act because you, you feel you have to act, but you don't necessarily know that what you're doing is going to help, but you can't live with yourself if you don't do something. I read an article... Um in March last year by Kate Marvel, who who would actually characterise what you just described as um, as courage, as much as as much as it is hope. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I, that's, that's a very, it's a very powerful article by Kate. She's an she's an excellent writer. Mm. Um, so, h- how do you discuss climate change with your two sons? So, to contact my sons are, are four and six. So, you know, there's a limit to how far you can take take it with a four-year-old um, or a six-year-old, for that matter. I mean, we talk about, you know, 
burning fossil fuels creates this thing called CO2 and how that can, can make the planet warmer than it would like to be, or how we would like it to be. And we talk about what things in our daily lives cause that to happen and how we can do those as little as possible. Um, but we don't, consider, I don't, we don't talk about it in a technical fashion or in isolation, so it's kind of in the context of, as previous caller was talking about, you know, a sort of what you might call extractivism. So, you know, if they want a new toy, where does that toy, does that toy come from? And um, what has to be mined or cut down or, or extracted or made to, to produce it? And how does it get here? From where in the world is it made? And, you know, could we buy a second-hand one? That sort of thing. Yeah. Um, who has to make it? You know, whose mum is working in a factory or dad is working in a mine or whatever it might be to produce that, that article? Mm. So that just trying to help them that understand that it's not just this abstract thing called CO2 because it's, it's, it's totally difficult enough to wrap your head around as an adult, to be honest. Um, and someone who has a science background, when you're, when you're four, it's totally impossible. So, anyway, my youngest boy is he's completely obsessed with superheroes like many kids do. So, we talk about you know the baddies that his favorite hero might be fighting against. Um, and there's always, you know, because lots of research has basically showed that mental resilience later in life comes from having a feeling of a secure childhood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm always very careful to use lots of the assurance that you know lots of grown-ups are doing everything they can to try and help. Because that's true. I mean, it might not give me a lot of hope, but it is true that you know many people are working to try and um, change that course a little bit. Um, and so that, that reassurance is, is there not because I believe it necessarily, but because what's more important is that they have um, as secure and as, as happy a childhood as I can give them, whilst not pretending that things are better than they are. Uh, um, yeah, I. that's... It's a it's a really complicated and 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 difficult line to to tread, I imagine. Um, Desperately so. Desperately so. Um, so, do you ever try and talk with other parents and sort of um, be able to connect with them, um, or people thinking about having children and relating it to to climate change? Is 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 there any sort of tapping into any sort of community building or something that you can do in that respect? So I'm, I mean, my cohort have all kind of had kids um, some while ago, so it's a bit late on that, on that on that regard. I mean, more generally, um, my children have recently started school, and so I'm trying to kind of build relationships within the, the parental community to be able to, um, uh, what should we say, get towards having that conversation. Um, I'm a governor at the school and trying to raise that subject with the governors is, is, is really tricky. So uh, I think fundamentally other people are in, are in the denial that doesn't acknowledge it. They just don't want to know about it because mm-hmm. it's so, so awful that <laughs> they just don't want to face it, um, as, you, as you know. And so... Um, it's not a conversation I've had a lot of times, a lot, a lot with um, both of my brothers have children, I have two brothers, and three, mm-hmm. three nephews and nieces, um, aged anywhere between one and 15. And um, I have a very close relationship with my brothers, but even then, it's extremely hard to have that conversation.
conversation in any uh, real sense. I mean, they're not daft, they know, they understand that things are, are pretty bad. But again, if you're going to be a, a functional parent to your kid, you can't walk around as an emotional shell all the time. Which is what you do if you really stare this thing deeply in the eye every day. Hmm. So it's a very strange place to be in, I think, uh, emotionally and mentally, in a way, to sort of acknowledge this thing that they're not. You know, how do you, how do you really, really deal with that um, when talking to other people other than <laughs> sobbing or swearing a lot or whatever it might be? Yeah. Um, I find myself when I talk to my sisters that I'm constantly kind of self-censoring and I come out of it feeling like a, a little bit intellectually dishonest from our, our, our conversations that we have together. Um, and to be dishonest with my sisters, the sisters who I'm actually, you know, who I'm very close with and who I always used to, you know, being able to tell the truth with is, is, that's such a strange part of it as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 can, I can hear that. It's, um, then, you know, the, 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 that's what I think the Western world has a to do about death, about hmm. that's, whether that's personal death or whether that's possibly death of our societies. And I don't, I don't subscribe to the we're all never to be doomed scenarios. Mm-hmm. I just think Things are going to get pretty unpleasant. I mean, not that they are. I mean, to say, they already are unpleasant for many people. Um, they have been unpleasant for a long time for many people. It's the, dare I say, white, comfortable world that's going to get <laughs> eventually um, discomforted. And we're not used to talking about that or confronting it or being at peace with it. And I think that contributes to our difficulties when discussing it with people who otherwise we would we would talk about all sorts of things that are emotionally quite hard. Yeah. Yeah. Um so I I've just started paying attention to this as a subject ever since about the beginning of last year when my sisters decided to have children. Uh but I felt this year there was sort of a growing number of people abstaining from having children and, and accompanying that a growing anti natalist movement for there seem to be for two conflicting reasons the first that having a new child in a developed society is the single most damaging act you can do emissions wise uh, and that assumes all is not lost um and that there's still hope but the second is looking at a child and what sort of life that they can expect which has a whole different set of expectations and assumptions which is it, it fears the worst is this a debate you've thought much about in terms of the anti-natalist movement and, and which conclusions have you reached? There's a movement in the UK called Birth Strike um, and they've, you know, they've been on TV kind of being interviewed and, and their position is that um, they want to have children but they are um, effectively taking this position as a symbolic protest. Mm-hmm. And using the fact that that you know limits on reproduction, um, particularly in sort of Western, but I call it liberal societies, are a, a massive taboo. Yeah. And so that that's quite powerful mm-hmm. um, as, a, as a as a protest act. I think having children can uh, and, and yeah, will increase future emissions, but that also depends on the assumption that our, our lifestyle in the future will remain the same as it is now. Yeah. 
I think fundamentally that that's an assumption that we mustn't allow to become true. Um, and I say that slightly in a state of um, radical hope, shall we say? Yeah. Um, but you know, everyone. Uh, I think one of the reasons I stay away from the topic of um, of you know control of birth rates is actually, particularly as far as um, emissions goes, uh, it, it tends to it can result in people sort of saying, "Well, where are the birth rates highest?" Mm, and then yeah. trying to say, "Well, you know, parts of Africa should stop having to make children." Well, actually, when the, their sort of annual carbon footprint is one tenth of a ton, um, and that's you know two weeks driving for a lot of people in the, in yeah. the developed world, then uh, you know it's a bit rich to start talking about you know they shouldn't have so many kids. So there's a, there's a few things where I, I tend to sort of shy away from it as a as a as a topic, but I think the thing that it, it shows us, to be honest, is that there are so many places in the in the, in the world where life is not certain, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you only have to go back 150 years to the point where in the UK, where people would have lots of children because they didn't expect many of them to necessarily survive past the age nine boys are now. So the white, so the Western world, in quotes, and you know, you do put include Australia in that. Um, is not familiar with this idea, really. I mean, intellectually and emotionally, they're not familiar with this idea, but people having kids, and those kids are in danger, mm-hmm. are just fundamentally in danger. That's to the world is a dangerous place. There's an essayist in the States, Mary Hegler, who's um, one of my favourite authors writing on this topic and um, exploring climate change from the point of view of, of, of communities of colour in the US. Um and she's written an essay called Saying the First Existential Crisis. I, I won't attempt the Alabama accent, but um, mm. basically that essay cracked the shell of sort of mental privilege that so many, more, mostly white people, mm. carry around. Yeah. But yeah, we should, we should all have a life where, and actually, you know what, we should, everybody in the world should have a life where they're not worried about lots of things, but unfortunately that isn't, isn't reality. And so it's, I think, Part of um, the realization that we should all, you know, everyone should ideally have is that actually we're all we're all in danger, and that we all need to do something about it. Whether we will or not, I can't say. But that, the assumption baked in that it will all be okay to many societies, you know, that assumption doesn't hold, hasn't held for some time actually. That that is really really starting to come to pieces. Um, and I don't know how what it will take for, for us to realise that at a society level, um, not just at an individual level. Mm. Callum, I'm, I'm a little aware of the time and that you have to be um, getting your getting your, your boys ready uh, for the day ahead. Um, yeah. Thank thank you so much for your. Oh, it's actually it's actually a lot earlier than uh, than we wanted than than, than you uh, had thought. So. Uh... Oh really? Uh, the boys are currently fast, fast asleep. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. Ahead of where we thought we'd be. Oh, I, I so, got. Uh, if 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 there's none in this corner, but um, if you want, if there's anything else you want to cover, I'm I'm, I'm awake and happy to talk about it. So. Uh, oh, um, well, we've actually we're we're running a little low on time, but um, thank you so. Okay, sure. Thing no worries. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thanks so much. And sorry about the the time mess up. That's that's definitely on me. Um, but yeah, thank you for also thank you for your bravery in in speaking about this and and um, yeah for coming on the show.
No okay. Okay. Bye-bye, Cal. Cheers for having me. Bye-bye now. You're listening to 3CR, 855am, the voice of the community. Welcome back. Um, that was Callum McFarlane, and um, we have here still uh, Apsara. So- sorry, so um, so much sorry <laughs> for cutting you off before there. Um, sorry, that was an international call, and and uh, I thought he was up trying to get his kids ready, but I messed up the time, and it was actually <laughs> super early. Um, so we were talking about the way that. Um, IMARC blockade, blockade IMARC is able to seize the narrative mm. and, and stop, um, you know, the, the, a really superficial um, take of what their, their actions are. Um, yeah, I think, um, as I said to you before, I, uh, we can't rely on mainstream media to do that job for us. And I think um, the fact that we have social media and um, that was really great in being able to get a different narrative out there. And I, I think in the first day of uh, blockade, of the first real day of blockading, um, you know, the images that were being, um, <coughs> that were being presented to the public and the um, narrative that was being presented by the news agencies and, um, uh, and um, television shows or what have you, were actually incongruent with one of the <coughs> sorry <coughs> so it was really i think really um important for us to recognize that these messages we have to just keep chipping away um yeah and so i think it's just that chipping away is what we need to do and slowly we can actually unpack that and i think these stories need to be told and whilst we're talking about police brutality i also want to say mm. that Police brutality that we experienced for two days is just, um, uh, it's a very small part of what uh, most First Nations peoples have actually experienced on the front lines. And I think it's really important for us to recognise we are going to have to get onto the front line Mm -hmm. if we are going to (coughs) deal with this climate catastrophe that we are. I'm so sorry, I've just got this cough. Uh Yeah, so I think we just need to be um, aware of that. Sorry about that. No, you're right. Do you need a sip of water? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I think you're totally right, especially our uh, First Nations have been have been dealing with this for so long. Mm. Um, so let's play devil's advocate for a moment where you, you, I try to avoid it as much as possible, but like ending up on the comment section below a sort of Murdoch Press article and social media sites, mm. they say you're just stopping people from getting to work. You know, how do you, how do you kind of inter, interact or how do you face that sort of, that really superficial uh, summation of what you're doing? Well, yes. First of all, I think we have to unpack what they're trying to say there. They are saying that we are trying to stop uh, business executives from uh, business as usual. Yeah. So let's actually, that's actually very important, and um, that's what they're saying is, as long as it's business as usual for these executives who get away with uh, with causing some of the biggest um, or like some of the largest havocs that we have seen around mm-hmm. the world, um, they are these are corporate criminals. They're not just only. Um, Mining criminals, they're corporate criminals. They are 
the stuff that they're doing in killing people um, in order to actually access minerals and what have you is something that we need to constantly um, um, get away from, I mean, so, so, uh, to divert attention away from um, the kind of, um, you know, uh, lies that are being told by the uh, corporate media. And it's very important uh, for people to recognize that we are not uh, impacting uh, these organizations in any way except at their hip pocket. Mm. And, that's when they get really angry and this is the kind of things that they say. They're not, we're not affecting everyday people. People who go to these kind of conferences are people who are effectively um, executives. They're not everyday workers. So I think that's yeah. a, a really important distinction yeah. between the two. And also I think we should never, and I have a real issue when we, uh, when we also have this thing where we um, create a thing of the good the good protester and the bad protester. Mm. Um, even people like the Extinction Rebellion going out on the streets and actually protesting is very important. Change doesn't happen without disruption. Yeah, yeah, I yeah I agree. Um, and I think a real the real powerful thing about blockade Iamark has been the some of the images that have come out um, about the violence and that 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 had broken out. Um, can you? Uh, we only get the short videos and we don't ever see the escalation. Can you describe the mechanics of how things escalated from people standing, chanting, and holding placards to to, to the scenes of violence we saw? So, I mean, I might just do like a little bit of a timeline of the two Please. days, yeah, of Tuesday and Wednesday, because they were the days when the violence was at its worst. So um, the blockaders uh, organised to arrive at six or prior to six, you know, so we had this little organising meeting and then we're on the blockade hmm. at um, 6.10, uh, holding, as you said, um, uh, linking arms and uh, standing behind bollards. So the police officers were um, had set up bollards and we, uh, they were... Um, Man, uh, manning the doors and we stood behind the bollards and I mean within about 20 minutes they started pushing us down the stairs which was um, huh. pretty much uncalled for they yeah. asked, uh, for, uh, like, um, so they they wanted to the higher ground already that was all part of their um, so was, is, is there warning or is it just a charge no, no just a charge they just literally started pushing us down right. the stairs so th- that was this was a tactic that they had decided they were going to employ a tactic of um, of pure aggression from the onset right and then by 6.30, there were um, uh, horses that had been uh, brought into very uh, close confines. Yeah. And, um, and the horses were being used to, um, literally, they were being used to uh, disperse protesters. Yeah. And so the, uh, protest, uh, the horses were being used to uh, uh, disperse pro- protesters. But that what that effectively meant was that they were trampling on protesters' feet, uh, 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 toes. And, you know, it was just a chaos, a yeah. chaotic kind of scene. And then from 7 a.m. onwards, the violence just escalated, you know. So um, that was on the first day. Right. And um, I can't tell you just the level of violence. We're talking about things like, you know, the use of batons, I think you said before, mm-hmm. um, the pushing. Um, we have videos of uh, cops using um, punching women yeah. okay, in their face. Now, when we talk about um, hmm. one-punch campaigns, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you think obviously the police don't seem to understand that it actually applies to every single one, including themselves. Yeah. <coughs> we had um, the use of chemical weapons, pepper spray. Right. Um, um, horses, I mean, it's just a... You can't imagine we were in main, in downtown Melbourne because you'd think that we were in 
Hong Kong or some other place. <coughs> and then on Wednesday, it just escalated from there. It just got worse. And by the time it, we got to um, about midday, the police had just got so violent that 50 protesters were pepper sprayed. I, I noticed that they they stopped they stopped using horses uh, after the first day, right? So it was much more this quite uh, more intimate intimidatory violence. Right? The, but the horse was still there. Oh, were they? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, they were there for the full um, duration of the of the conference. Right. So I I, I kind of want to strike a contrast now, but with with the climate strike. Um, which I I attended and was uh, the police were they kept their distance mm. they kept their cool, um, but the it's such a contrast with the IMARC blockade. Um, why do you think why do you think it it evoked such a different response? Oh yeah, um, uh, make no uh, mistake, we were embarrassing the state government of Victoria in what we did. The, the climate strikes did not disrupt business as usual for the 0.1% of this world. And the state government of Victoria wants to make a good impression on these executives. And, you know, unwittingly by us being there, we caused so much havoc for the government yeah. as well as the... Um, uh, as, as well as the... Um, the executives, and that is why the reaction was different. But I also want to be uh, clear that, you know, whilst that was happening, we still need to have, and I think it's really important for us to recognise that we need to have those kind of large actions like the school uh, strikes for kids is an amazing movement. When you think about, like, 150,000 people being able to come to one place and just show, and kids coming out and, you know, saying... Enough is never enough. I think it's fabulous. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so I, 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 wo- I work with. I have a work colleague who head head down on Wednesday, and he said there was. Um, he he was a little turned off within the protest, so he went down to protest. Mm. That there were so many chants related to class, and he had trouble mm. getting into it. Mm. And he was sort of firmly. He's firmly within the the middle class. He he works in IT and. But he's still going to be affected by climate change, not as much as someone in in, in like who's in the working class who's struggling. Mm. But do you do you think that there's a risk that protests sort of get hijacked by people with more specific concerns than climate justice? And how do you stay on point? Right. So I think for me, climate change is not should not be thought in a vacuum mm-hmm. because actually. Um, it and it needs to be broadened, yeah. Right? And um, so, climate change is something that really started to happen during colonization and yeah. colonial capitalism. Yeah, we need to start looking at climate change from that perspective. Colonizers that came to around the world, European mm-hmm. colonizers, are really fundamentally um, the people who have driven climate change and climate ext- and animal and plant extinction at the rate that we have seen okay so we need to constantly be looking at what how colonialism and capitalism have had this huge impact and now neoliberalism um we if we are going to address climate change we do need to address the fact that we live in a in an economy where we talk about growth 
economic yeah. growth is what is killing the planet. We have to, de- and in order to decarbonize the planet, we actually have to look at ways in which we look at um, growth. Growth in itself is uh, is is a major issue, and we know that there are so many people out there that. For them, climate change might be an issue if they were not dealing with the fact that they are so, they can't even put food on their table. Mm-hmm. So if we don't look at class as well, and this is something that we need to look at, and growing inequality, we are now living in the most unequal time in history since World War Two, And this means that uh, so many people who are actually going to suffer from climate change don't even have the capacity to be thinking about climate change because they can't even put food mm-hmm. on the table. So I think it's really important, um, like anyone in the climate movement has to really take an intersectional perspective. And uh, that intersectional lens will actually then see us, show us that climate change has to be addressed in so many different ways um, and taking into account the intersections of um, disadvantage that a lot of people experience. And understanding that, you know, our experience of climate change here in Australia as people who live uh, who are living in developed countries who are actually the major contributors. The developed world is actually the Absolutely. major contributor to climate change. Yeah. Um, yet people in the global south who are not the ones who right. are contributing will be the most impacted by climate change. Yep. So I think um, for protesters like your friends, I, I encourage him to think about it a little bit more broader and think mm-hmm. about how he can actually, how, you know, climate change impacts different people and that, you know, we need to look at it much more broader than just climate change on its own. Yeah, I, I um, okay, I I take that comment. I I just think that there's there's a risk, a sort of a, pragma, a practical risk of, trying to solve multiple problems at once that nothing gets solved. Um, yeah, yeah, well, okay, we could say that, but also I think um, the other problem that we have is we need to make this a broader movement and a broader movement will require us to also uh, address broader issues. Otherwise, you know, I mean, I see myself as relatively privileged. I, mm-hmm. I, and climate change or talking and addressing climate change, it is a post-materialist issue. And so, therefore, of course, people like myself who don't have to worry about, you know, do I need to put food on my kids' table, uh, plates or what have you, can actually think about climate change, you know, yeah. uh, as that, uh, you know, uh, abstract issue. But a lot of people can't even get to think about those ab- yeah. uh, climate change as an abstract issue because they can't even think about, um, you know, their very survival. So I think it's really important for us to bring a whole group of people along with us. Um, at Blockade IMARC, I just wanted to throw in, you know, we really wanted to centre the voice of First Nations peoples and uh, people of colour. So we had um, we flew in from uh, Northern Territory and uh, Queensland, mm-hmm. First Nations elders who are actually on front lines fighting, um, um, uh, you know, the gas companies and, yep. uh, and uh, coal mining companies. We had Eritreans speak at the at uh, IMARC, um, West Papuans, uh, South mm-hmm. Americans, and also uh, people, uh, solidarity groups um, that are in solidarity with the Philippines uh, uh, people. So we're talking about the fact that this is something we need to also recognize is that, yep. um, uh, you know, to make this movement uh, as broad and as inclusive as possible, mm-hmm. we need to broaden the way in which we discuss it as well.
Absolutely. Absara, thank you so much for coming on the show. Sorry about the, the, the split interview in the beginning. But, no worries. Uh, um, what's next? What's next? Just very, very quickly. Yeah, yeah. So um, this Friday um, is a, um, a rally called uh, Speak Out, Defend the Right to Protest, Climate Justice Now, which is at 5.30 p.m. at uh, Bake Street Mall. And it's literally because of the, um, the uh, fallout of blockade IMAC. Well, I'm not quite sure if I could call it a fallout, but the fact that yep. um, Scott Morrison is now talking about the fact that uh, climate mm. um, climate protesters shouldn't be given the opportunity to be protesting and that, you know, we're causing too much uh, disruption. I think it's really important for as many people to come out and say that we live in a democracy and yep. we have every right to be demonstrating peacefully. That's right. That's right. Absara, thanks so much again. And um, where can people find out more? What, what site? What website? Um, yes. So we do have a website. It's called Blockade IMARC. Yep. And um, you can find a lot of information about what we're up to. And um, join us because we need to uh, build this movement. We ne- 2020 will be, if the IMARC continues, we definitely need to make sure it's a much bigger action outside IMARC. Good on you. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. For two years now, direct action has been used to blockade the development of the Adani mine in the Galilee Basin. The mine, one part of a vast seam of coal that represents a carbon bomb that could push the world a third of the way to a two-degree temperature increase. This is not just the Guadalajara group, but other mining conglomerates from China, the USA, and our own Clive Palmer, who is trying to sue an internet comedian for calling him a fatty McFuckhead. If the Adani mine were to go ahead, critical infrastructure would be in place to allow other mines to become cost-effective. Blockade Adani are a group that will employ non-violent direct action to stop what's happening. I have on the line with me from Frontline Actions, Rilke Laycock Walsh. Rilke, welcome to the show. Hey, Kurt. Thanks for having me. Uh, really good to have you here. I think like many Australians, I'm aware of the blockade but have little idea about its history. Can you just take us through a brief history of the Adani blockade? Yeah, sure. So, um, Frontline Action on Coal started the first ever blockade of a coal mine in Australia at the Weird State Forest. Um, they then went on to um, start the first blockade camp against the Adani mine, which was established on Beery land just west of Bowen about um, nearly five years ago in 2015. Um, it was in reaction to Adani's plans to build a terminal zero to dredge part of the Great Barrier Reef um, and to build dredged spoil ponds mm-hmm. next to the Cali Valley wetlands. Um, lawsuits and local resistance put a stop to these projects and then fierce campaigning by the Wangan and Jangulingu, as well as other groups, helped to make it impossible for Adani to receive the $2 billion in funding it needed. And then um, in May 2017, when it looked like Adani was about to start work in earnest on the mine and the rail, um, a full-time presence dedicated to blockading um, and direct action was established. In the time since then... Like thousands of people have come through and over 100 arrests have taken place. Um, yeah, throughout 
this time all these people have come and yeah, experienced the regenerative culture and community here and experienced like the empowerment you get from taking direct action and they've been able to be inspired and being able to take that back to their communities. Um, then just in August, this year, Adani began land clearing mm. on the proposed Carmichael mine site. Um, so in response to that, we called a red alert. A red alert. Um, and, yeah, since that time, actions out at the site and also against local contractors who are working on or tending for contracts, um, they, yeah, they've been consistent. So if... if... If you're okay with it, Rilke, I'd really like um, to understand your your personal story and what made you move and head out into remote central Queensland to stop uh, the Adani mine, or oh, the Carmichael mine, from going ahead. Um, yeah, sure. It's, I guess it was pretty much just like a serious feeling of frustration and like kind of unbearable sadness at the inaction of our government in this climate crisis. Mm. Um yeah, it's what led me to quit the best job I've ever had and to dedicate my time to protect the climate and to stop a catastrophe while we still can. Yeah. I couldn't just sit by and watch this madness and this destruction and this corruption continue. Like, thankfully, I became aware of direct action and civil disobedience and the existence of the Adani blockade and realised there were avenues for me to take real action to protect the climate. And did did you? I don't want to. I don't want to put words in your mouth. But did you feel that uh, we exhausted the traditional uh, democratic voting avenues that are open to us? Well, yeah. Like the history of our government's mismanagement of coal projects and the environment in general shows the inadequacy of traditional means of campaigning. Um, we see nothing but dirty tricks from politics. And yes, we have exhausted all traditional democratic voting avenues. This is the only way for people to get their voices heard. Um, rushed approvals with inadequate scientific data, along with like corrupt politicians and huge corporate donations, are proof that our democracy is not working and traditional means are failing us. Um, I'd like to talk now a little bit about those uh, new laws that were just passed in Queensland, I think, a uh, week before last, which criminalised uh, locking on devices and increased uh, police yeah. search uh, ability. Um, is that inhibiting the way that your, your, your action and your blockade, is it having an effect? No. Um, oh, while Anastasia Palaget might think that creating another unjust law will stop environmental activists. The truth is we've already been facing unjust charges and we're already prepared to base the law in the name of climate activism. We're in a crisis and, yeah, the only thing that is working is civil disobedience. The future of the world is at stake and another charge is not going to discourage people from acting in this crisis. If, if anything, it highlights the problems in our democracy and mm. in turn helps people to see the inadequacies in our government that we've been trying to shine a light on for years. 
So the traditional owners of the Carmichael mine site are the Wangan and Jagalingu people, and their native title has been extinguished, so the mine can continue to be built on their and their lands dug up. Um, what has been the impact of this piece of legislation on the wider blockade? And, and to take it back a step, what is the relationship between the traditional owners and other members of the blockade? Do they cooperate directly? Um, well, we stand in solidarity with the Wangan and Jangalingu and um, we do have a relationship with them which helps us to understand how we can better support them and their rights for their sacred land. Um, but they have a, a different tactic and um, a different strategy and their campaign has been going on for many years and they've had a long struggle trying to protect their land. Um, yeah, with the government changing the native title laws to allow Adani to override native titles and make it easier for Adani and other fossil fuel companies to steal land from traditional owners. So, yeah, it's an extreme battle they face and, um, we, yeah, we do stand in solidarity with them. But they, yeah, they um, are fighting a different... Well, like fighting the same fight but in a, in a much different way. Great. Um, so what sort of people are joining the blockade uh, and, and where are they coming from? I, I was just, I read an article um, on the weekend and it's, it, it, it was about, uh, is it the, the Grey Brigade? The, the, the Grey Brigade, the um, like retiree. Oh, yeah, Grey Power. Grey Power, Grey Power, that's right. And they come out and yeah. they seem to be a really interesting uh, group. But uh, what are, where, are, where are these protesters and where are these blockade uh, members coming from? Uh, from all over, there's like heaps of different types of people that come. Uh, we have some like old school activists that were at like the Franklin River Dam in Tasmania or at the Terrini Creek blockade and who have been involved in the environmental movement for decades. Um, there's people completely new to activism. Um, and, yeah, then there's all the different groups that come. So, like, there's the Knitting Nanas, which are, yeah, a great bunch of um, campaigners. And then Grey Power, like, Sabadani groups. There's teachers, nurses, doctors, engineers that have all come through. Yeah, it's it's a kind of random bunch. It's a really good kind of like section of different ages and kind of people in different walks of life, but all people who have realised how serious the issue is and have the ability to take time out from, yeah, to come from like all over Australia and even, you know, sometimes overseas. That's fantastic. Um, and uh, just one last question, uh, which is... I'm I'm really interested about uh, your relationship there uh, and the blockade's relationship with the locals. I know that local farmers are very concerned about water rights with Adani and, and, and that has been granted, which is unlimited use. Uh, what is the relationship between the protesters and the locals that, that, that live in the area? Well, yeah, Adani's mine will have serious effects on water for both farms and native ecosystems. Um, we have a strong relationship with the Stopadani Bowen group, as well as some of the farmers near the mine site that would be dramatically affected. Uh, we also have great relationships with some Collinsville and Airy Beach locals. But yeah, we are in 
the belly of the beast here, mm. and sadly, our objection to the Adani mine is seen as a direct threat to these people's lives, which is just not the case. Like, if the, if the mine were to go ahead, it would be a great loss to mining jobs both in Queensland and New South Wales yeah. due to Adani's supposed automated mine having less cost and therefore dropping the price of coal and in turn shutting down older mines which rely on people to run them. This will give them no safe or just transition. Um, but, yeah, coal has been made into a really divisive issue here. There's no denying it. There is a lot of propaganda from the mining industry and local politicians stoking divisions for their own gain. Um, but, but many people do understand the issues of climate change, though, and they do understand that mining won't be around forever. And, yeah, there are people that also want to see a just transition. That's great. Um, so what? Uh, how can people at home that want to support you, what, what can they do? Well, we welcome anybody to come up here um, and learn about direct action and realise the power you have and to use it. Um, but, yeah, if you don't have the capacity to come to camp, it's really valuable talking to people and spreading awareness of the blockade and the campaign in general. Um, follow us on Facebook and Instagram and check out our website, com. And, yeah, like, to share our stories and to share our fundraisers. Um, there's also a new group, Galilee Rising, which is being launched next week. And it will run info nights to help recruit in different cities and towns. So you can join them and get the resources to run an info night in your own town or city. Um, or you can join a local Frontline Action Call or Sapadani group or one of the many groups resisting the fossil fuel industry. Um, and, yeah, if you have any spare money, donations are more than welcome. We're completely volunteer-run, so any money goes directly to stopping the proposed Adani mine. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of disempowerment around climate change, mm-hmm. but we really believe that ordinary people working together can change the world for the better. So, yeah, we encourage everybody to get involved whatever way you can. Yeah, and if that means coming up here to the front lines, I look forward to seeing you here. That's fantastic, Rilke. That's that's awesome. I, I I really think that in the future you're going to be looked on as as, as heroes for what you're doing right now. Um, thanks so much for coming on the program. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Kurt. Okay. Bye bye. Um, so yeah, as you heard, they're coming from all walks of life. So you should, and they could really use your support. So uh, just to finish off, Vivian suggested that I look into Rebel Offset. Uh, so that's a really rad idea where you offset your air miles by contributing to the legal fees of arrested activists. Um, if if you're going on holidays this summer and and going to be racking up some miles, how about? You put, send some offset dollars to help bail people out, um, people that are really making a difference, like uh, Rilke and Apsara here. Um, and I think it's a way to be involved in direct action while keeping a uh, relatively clean rap sheet. So that's that's all from me for in 2019. Uh, next year I'll be back in February. My first show I will be di- uh, divesting my, my super from fossil fuels and using it to help the climate, um, all the while trying to, to make a, make some money for my retirement. Um, and so that's, that's it 
And uh, that's all we have time here. We are uh, just a just a note. We are broadcasting um, from Radio Three CR in Melbourne, but also from Radio Skid Row in Sydney. If your local radio station could take our climate action show, please send us details at radio team or one word at bze.org.au.